Tired of relying on intuition to guide your brand marketing? We're excited to introduce Tracksuit, the affordable always-on brand tracking dashboard. This platform lets brands benchmark themselves against competitors and unearth valuable insights. Want to understand what an outstanding growth result is for your brand over a year? Check out their data-packed brand benchmarking report at www.gotracksuit.com benchmark and go in the draw to win a year of tracksuit brand tracking valued at $14,000. Welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jaspin, and today, have you wondered what goes into election advertisements? Just as you thought we were finished, our election content campaign edges. Dee Madigan joins the podcast to discuss her election winning campaign for Labour. Then, Angela Tangus moves up in the world of Dentsu after making a dent of her own in the Japanese holding group's Australian recovery. Finally, SBS has launched World Watch, a new multilingual news channel aimed at servicing Australia's 5 million who speak another language. You'll hear from News and Current Affairs Director Mandy Wicks and Director of SBS Radio David Spire about the channel's launch. Joining me today for all of this is Acting Managing Editor Andrew Banks and Reporter Kalila Welsh. How are you both doing today? Hey, thanks, Cal. Nice to be here. Hey, Kalila. Yeah, good to be here. We're not doing too bad. Better than you, I hear. Been a troublesome 24 hours. I um, copped my own shot to the eye in futsal last night, went blind for a few hours, and have spent most of the subsequent 24 hours in hospital with lights being shone down me. But I am here, I've got two Oof. eyes, and we're feeling good about it. Yeah, you'll, you might need an eye patch for the rest of this, Callum. Well, uh, that might have closed my eye last night, but we've got some eye opening content for you today. And. Hey. Uh, <laughs> We're going to kick things off with uh, fresh off leading the Australian Labor Party's winning campaign in the 2022 federal election is Gruen Regular and Campaign Edge's Dee Madigan. She joins us now for this interview. Dee Madigan, Executive Creative Director at Campaign Edge, welcome to the podcast. Hi, happy to be here. I guess, uh, first of all, uh, start by saying congratulations um, on the campaign. You played a big part in the weekend's win. Yeah, thank you for that. It was, um, I, I think I was sort of starting to finally move from just feeling just utter relief to actually just starting to smile about it. It's a, it's a weird feeling campaigns. There's a lot of <laughs> adrenaline and, <laughs> and stuff running around. I can imagine. Um, yeah, well, first of all, it must be interesting um, in comparison to commercial advertising because uh, in a sense, you you have a clear result at the end. It's not about ROIs. It's not about you know impressions. Uh, basically, the brief was let's win, and you've won. Is that is that an interesting feeling? Um, look, it is, and I I have been doing now campaigns sort of pretty much for ten years. So which and it was a deliberate thing to move out of brand advertising. However, there's a lot of similarities. Like it is still um, about buying eyeballs and it's about persuading people to do what you want. And and it is about purchasing. So whether you're choosing to purchase a product or, you know, a vote is in a sense of purchase as well and it's the same mm-hmm. drivers behind it. So it, it's sort of really dissimilar and not as dissimilar as you might think. What did you make of the uh, the overall standard of political advertising uh, this time around? I know a lot's been made about, you know, the Liberals, the the Bucket campaign, Clive's spend. What, what did you think? 
Um, I thought I was really happy to see Clive throw $100 million to get, well, he may pick up a Senate seat in Victoria, but, yeah. man, that is the world's most expensive seat. I mean, his ads were terrible. Um, I thought the first elbow, it won't be easy under Albanese, I thought it was a poor line. Um, it's strategically poor because it assumes things are easy now and a lot of people are like, well, it's not easy now. So it was, I think they were going for the bill you can't afford, trying to go for something memorable, which I get. But it mm-hmm. was strategically wrong. And and you've got to start first with strategy. And I thought the first of the um, their neg ads, which was, you know, elbow flipping on a, a weather vane, um, whilst it had a strong visual idea, um, it was also I knew it wouldn't work because people actually think all politicians kind of changed their mind. It had no... no um, no substance behind it. I thought Bucket, as annoying as it was, was at least on strategy it was going to Labor's brand weakness, which is that they are seen to be the party that spends. But it's a very hard argument to make when you have doubled the debt before COVID as the Liberal Party. They've lost kind of that a little bit. But at least, again, you know, it was earwormy. I don't, I get why a lot of people hated it. I thought it was probably their better ad. Do you think there's something to be said for the them kind of name-checking Albanese is actually maybe helping Australians kind of with name recognition and understanding who he is? Oh, no, it's, it's an old kind of, I hear this sometimes, like, no, no, we shouldn't mention them by name. It's like we're in a federal election campaign. By the end of it, even the most disengaged voters will know their name. So, yeah. you know, it's, you know, and, and I know the bill, you, you know, the bill you can't afford got a lot of credit. I think, to be fair, I think actually it wasn't so much that campaign was good as the Labor campaign wasn't good for in the last yeah. campaign in the last in the two thousand nineteen, and that's that was a big difference as well. So, and then I guess this time around, um, what what was the sort of brief that you got for this campaign, and how, I guess where does it start? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So we start working on the strategy probably. I actually was thinking about that the other day. We, should, we need to sit down and go through all our emails. But I think we kind of nutted out the strategy um, about probably a year and a half ago about wow. what we needed to do. Yeah, it starts a long way out. Even before you get to making ads, it's working out, you know, what is the strategy. Um, obviously, you know, as much as people hate negative ads, we we know they work and, you know, and I think this election sort of proved that we knew what we knew the job we had to do on Morrison and and I know you know from my experience doing election campaigns the best way is not to tell people but to show people um mm-hmm. and and it was just a matter of using his own words really to remind people why they didn't like him yeah and I guess it sort of seemed like the Labor um campaign started off kind of on the positive note and then maybe got a little bit more of that kind of attack approach as we got closer to the date. Was that a particular tactic? All campaigns start off positive yeah. and um, you just got you, you you know, look, it's, it's a bit of both and it's getting the balance right, but the reality is we're actually hardwired to notice negative information. The broad aims of most political parties are the same. It's the methods of getting there that are different. Yeah. And in a positive ad, you, you've kind of, you've got to show the leader. If you don't show the leader, you know, you know you're in a, you know, something wrong with the brand and that will become a problem as well. So it's hard to do anything that's particularly standout-y doing that um yeah whereas it's the negative stuff that tends to get more attention and get shared um as well and and as uh, and swinging voters are far more likely to vote against things than for things 
Do you, do you think it's a similar sort of, or what, what does attack um, advertising work in commercial advertising? It can, if you're the challenger, it can be really, really fruitful. Um, you you have to just be careful. Like I don't do yellow and black doom and gloom attack ads in <laughs> politics or anywhere else. Um, but if you do an attack ad with a bit of humour or with a bit of cheekiness or letting you know, the other side almost do the attack for you and just frame it up. It can be really effective. Um, in advertising, I mean, we've seen it throughout the years where, you know, where Burger King has had a go at McDonald's or I think it was Avis was had their line something about we try harder because we're the second best. You know, there's, there's a lot of spaces to go in that, but you've just got to do it with a bit of cleverness. Do you think that sort of um, maybe people enjoy it more in commercial advertising or maybe it doesn't cause as much of a stir as because in, in most cases there is room for competitors, whereas obviously in politics it's sort of, you know, who, who beats who? There's not room for the both of us. There isn't. And it's also more personal. You know, for a lot of people, big things in their lives are at stake. And, and I don't, you know, I, I say this and, you know, I am... Yeah, a member of the Labor Party have been for, for God, 30-something years and whatever. So, but, but, you know, when you're, you know, in regional Australia and you know a change of government means you know, you're know you going to actually get to see a GP now instead of waiting six weeks, that's a huge, yeah. big difference if you believe that we need action on climate change. You know, so, so the stuff in this, the stakes are higher, so, um, so you've got to play harder. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it probably wouldn't have as much of a, a hit on the public if uh, Burger King, sorry, Hungry Jacks started saying that McDonald's CEO was a dickhead. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. Like it wouldn't impact as much, whereas um, in politics, you know, the leader matters because it, his beliefs flow through the whole party. Yeah. As the Liberal Party have found out too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so uh, looking at your, your website, D, um, it describes you as understanding the need for creativity as a tool to persuade an audience and effective messages that are always based on brand truths. One of the sort of main talking points around political advertising over the past six to eight weeks has been, um, I guess, whether or not the campaigns are based in truth and whether or not that needs you know, fixing. Do you think there needs to be more um, regulation in political advertising moving forward? It, it is a tricky thing. I know that in theory you'd go, of course there should be, and South Australia has a truth in political advertising. The problem is, oh, firstly, you do have to get an ad through CAD before it can run on broadcast yeah. TV, which means you do need to be able to substantiate your claims. I'm really interested to see how Palmer's ads got through CAD. That's a different story. But the problem is the industry is entirely self-regulated in terms of who decides what's true or not and in the heat of a campaign, who decides what's true or not. And 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 there would be accusations, like I don't know anyone in advertising who'd be wanting to put up their hand to be the arbiter of truth in that because people will dig through your background and say, no, you're pro this, you're pro that. So in theory... Um, you you know, and certainly we absolutely, I do not put anything on air that I believe is untruthful and can, can't be substantiated, but it's it's not as black and white as that and I'm not sure how you would regulate it to be such happy to, you know, have people's, you know, for it to be looked at. I just don't know how workable it is. And then, of course, that's only really going to apply to broadcast. How do you 
get into, you know, the interwebs. Surely everything, you know, anything that comes from a party has to be authorised, but there is a million, you know, organisations out there advertising during election campaigns, not always authorising stuff, and sometimes they're not even ads. They're out there on community um, Facebook pages pretending to be ordinary people commenting on stuff. Like there's, there's a whole unregulated space that I think is far more... Um, dangerous and definitely needs to be looked into a lot more than the claims made in an ad. Yeah. Um, You kind of mentioned Palmer's campaign there, some of the ads they got through. I I wrote about it earlier this week and spoke to a few people kind of getting an idea of, um, you know, just what he did get for that, um, you know, people have said, as you said, 100 million. I've heard a little bit less, a little bit more. Um, I think one of the main issues that has been talked about is just the lack of message in the actual campaigning. What did you make of that approach? And do you think we'll see anything like that again? No, I, look, I think he actually, it was a really poor campaign. The only poorer campaign, I think, than Palmer's was the Advance Australia. I don't know who does that, but the Liberal Party <laughs> should stop paying whoever it is. Um, Palmer thought there was a protest vote out there. And, and whilst there kind of was, People, what he forgets is people don't like him. Yeah. You know, like particularly in Queensland where, you know, his mind laid off 500 works and then they had to go to court to get their entitlements. People remember all this. And and that Craig Kelly, you know, our next PM, people in focus groups, would just they just roll their eyes at it. So there's one thing to go for after a protest vote, but you've got to do it with, a, you know, a little bit of intelligence. And, and the yeah. voters, you know, the voters aren't stupid. They might be disengaged. They might hate politics, but they are not stupid. There was a great uh, cut from one of his ads that I saw, which was um, I think it was just him on camera and said, if you want to smoke marijuana all day and get the doll for life, vote Greens, and then it was just cut. <laughs> well, you don't know, and he was thinking that was a bad thing? Or... <laughs> yeah, that's, that, <laughs> was, that, that's was, the point. <laughs> there was a, I thought the funniest was there was a Campbell Newman. So Campbell Newman, who's the ex-Premier of Queensland, deeply unpopular, lost after a term, was going for the Senate. Um, I think he got something like 1% or 2% of the vote, like completely flopped. But he had an ad that said, same man, different party. And I, because he was running for the Liberal Democrats this time, and I genuinely couldn't figure out if that was supposed to be a positive or a negative ad. Yeah. <laughs> because it was like, so a lot of these politicians like Clive Palmer, they just don't have someone around them to say, mate, this is not the way to run a campaign. I think Palmer, if they'd run a good campaign going for a protest vote, they probably could have maybe picked up a lot better, but um, they, they actually just ran a really bad campaign. Yeah. And... um I guess off the back of this, I know previously the coalition has maybe been a bit more willing to put their agencies on the government roster. Do you expect any work with the the, the federal government? Mm-hmm. Oh, Labor governments. Look, I would I would like it. I've done a lot of government work. I actually did more work for the Howard government than I ever have for a Labor government. Um, the Labor governments tend to be a little bit like, oh no, we can't be seen to be, you know, you know. So I've had, I you know, it's always a struggle to get on government list even though you say do you know what I don't even want special favors I just want a level playing field I've got a long history of of really effective social marketing so you know who knows I would like to be but you don't take anything for granted as I said I'm certainly not asking for any special favors but yeah it'd be be nice to be considered and I guess uh, just finally in terms of um moving forward for uh for brand Australia how do you think this changes things on the international stage um, a lot. I, I think a, a lot. There was a there was a bit of embarrassment, I think, in how 
people felt about how we perceived on on the international stage. I think when you know the French president comes out and he's quite happy about the result, I think you know hopefully we'll have better relationships with you know China. It's our largest trading partner. It'd be nice if you know if we can get some sanctions lifted because you know we've got wine growers, we've got cray fishermen who can't sell a lot of their product now. So I'd, I'd hopefully this just um, puts Australia in a, in a better place to sort of deal with the world would be would be great and also just for a lot of Australians I think it'll hopefully just be a more inclusive government um, that's not you know putting up candidates who just have culture wars for the sake of it you know I, I think I'm hoping it's a better a better political scene going forward. Brilliant well um, thank you so much for joining us today Deb and uh, congrats again on the weekend. Thank you. Some very interesting takeaways in there, Khalil. Anything in particular jump out to you? Absolutely. She said a lot of very interesting things, but I guess the thing that I really wanted to touch on was um, what she mentioned about the self-regulation in the advertising industry, particularly of the political advertising. Dee was saying that she didn't feel like anybody would be willing to put their hand up within the industry to adjudicate um, adjudicate on matters of truth in advertising, basically because people might dig up dirt on them, look into their background um, and, you know, point out who they've supported in the past and, and basically claim that they might be being biased. Um, something that I would wonder, I guess, is does this kind of point to the fact that maybe we need or the industry needs um, an external power to come in, not just relying on the self-regulation, whether that is something written into law, whether that's, you know, um, a third party coming in and making judgments on these matters. Um, but yeah, if if it seems like nobody's willing to come forward um, and and make that take that risk, I guess, what's the next step? Yeah, I mean, you know, that does apply to so many of these things in the industry. We do have these bodies which you know serve their purpose, but with many of them like the ANA, the MFA, they are kind of uh, made up of the industry. You know, last year um, with some of the sort of um, issues like uh, workplace harassment, sexual assault, um, I remember when Tim was Tim was here, he was kind of speaking about how, you know, that until maybe there is some sort of commission into it, we might not actually see any real change. And the same could apply for this. So that's a good point you bring up there, Kalila. Coming up next, Angela Tangus is moving up at Dentsu. What comes next for the Australian chapter? Last Friday, while feeling pretty dusty from the roaring success that was the Mumbrella Comms Con Awards the night before, we woke up to surprising news that Dentsu ANZ CEO Angela Tangus would be moving overseas, taking up the UK and Ireland branch of the Dentsu network. She'll be starting in September with no replacement announced as of yet. And the reason I say surprising was purely based off the fact that I, amongst others, maybe didn't see the timing over this move coming when it did. When you look at it a little bit closer, it does make a lot of sense. Khalil, what's the history here? Dentsu has been pretty quiet, maybe going a bit underground over the last 2.5 years after being, uh, I guess, pretty prominent in the, the trade news over 2019. Yeah, so I've had an absolute Dentsu education over the past 12 hours or so. Um, And there's been, you're right in saying that 2019 was a huge year for the group, Um, especially in the Dentsu ANZ executive team as well as in the CARA team too. 
I've created a little bit of a timeline here, just looking at some of the big moves that happened in 2019. Please tell me if I've missed anything here, but I have tried to be fairly thorough. So in the start of 2019, um, in early January, we saw Tangus promoted into the newly created role of Executive Director of Business uh, for the group. She'd previously been hired at Dentsu X in 2018 as National Managing Director, Uh, but she basically came into this new group role um, and was replaced in her previous role by CARA's Chief Strategy Officer, Sam Hegg. Uh, Later on that month, Henry Tasia was named CEO of the group, replacing Simon Ryan, who had departed the agency to join Car Sales as Managing Director of Commercial. Now to May, and there's a number of redundancies just a few months after the Tasia appointment. Um, we see Adrian Rowling, President of Amplify, Nick Seckhold, Managing Director of iProspect, and Andrew Hewitt, Head of Public Affairs and Communications for the Dentsu ANZ Network, all being made redundant in one kind of fair swoop. Um, the next in a ne- the next couple of months in July, Amplify appoints Michael Bass as Chief Investment Officer, uh, replacing Ashley Earnshaw, who had been moved to the helm of Dentsu Media Agency Visium as CEO. In August, Tangus, um, remember at the start of the year, Tangus had just been um, moved into the role of Executive Director of Business for the group. And then um, in August, she's promoted to Chief Commercial Officer, taking responsibility for Dentsu Solutions. The next month in September, Sue Scolacci joins Cara as CEO. Finally, um, one, one of the last big moves of that year was in November when CEO Henry Teja, who, remember, had just been appointed at the start of the year, what, and as well as CFO Reg Davidson, um, both departed the business very abruptly and Teja was immediately replaced by Tangus and Davidson was replaced by Jerome Whelan. Yeah. <laughs> a, a big, a big, a big bit of history there, um, Khalil, and I, I guess the story there is that after a, what was a very publicised 2019, that sort of set the tone for the next few years within Dentsu, and I, I think the job that Angela came in to do, uh, well, I say came in, promoted into very quickly, as as you mentioned there throughout the year was sort of to move beyond that and restructure the business a little bit. And that's why maybe the sentiment around Dentsu has lingered since is because, you know, when there's a lot of headlines, a lot of those sort of being negative with redundancies, people coming in, moving around, a lot of disruption. As we had kind of heard from um, from D earlier in this episode, negative headlines are, you know, a lot more powerful and a lot stronger and they stick in your mind a lot more than those positive ones were. So when there's not a lot of headlines coming out, that's kind of the sentiment that people talk about for a few years. But now, uh, the start of this year and towards the end of last year, Angela has made quite a number of pretty um, senior appointments at Dentsu. Uh, Sue Scolacci, as you mentioned there, was then, Sue was promoted last year to actually run the whole media side of Dentsu. Kirsty Muddle was brought across, as we all know, for to run the creative side of things. John Riccio was brought in at Merkel. David Halter as Chief Strategy Officer and Chris Bauer at Dentsu Solutions. And across this time, we've also seen uh, a lot of consolidation across the Dentsu group with a lot of brands being merged. And that's kind of part of a global strategy for Dentsu in aligning their brands to sort of bring them down to like eight, uh, around eight or nine sort of power brands. I was just going to say, I think, from what I've 
looked into, it seems as though all of the changes that happened in 2019 put a bad taste in people's mouth and kind of like tainted the Dentsu brand a little bit. People thought, you know, what's going on there? It's super rocky. And I think that it's kind of made it difficult for her um, to become a figurehead, I guess, of of Dentsu ANZ um, that is, you know, yeah, I think it's been difficult for her to be seen in a completely positive light just because she's inherited this situation that, as we've mentioned, was quite difficult and she's kind of taken a really different approach to what the typical Adland leader would be taking and I think it's made it quite difficult for her. Obviously, she's done well and she's gotten this promotion but I do think that that probably is why there is such a polarising, um, you know, bunch of perspectives around on on whether she was leading in the right way or whether her approach was the best approach for Dentsu and, uh, and you know, what they're going to do moving forward. I did speak to Angela yesterday. She's uh, over in the UK at the moment meeting the team. Um, I asked her if it was a tough decision kind of deciding to move along just as things are sort of, well, I guess the last two years for her of work are kind of coming to fruition and she said, yes, it was of course, a very tricky decision and, and, and a bittersweet one, but, you know, it's a great opportunity um, and that she has great confidence in the leadership team to carry things on through here. Uh, I did ask her, interestingly, if there was a chance of split leadership, remembering that uh, in the holding groups in Australia, I believe otherwise, sorry, other than Densu Publicis with Michael Rubello is the only one that has full remit across both media and creative Um I kind of asked, you know, if the, those two media and creative leaders would kind of take uh, take the helm of things. And she said, no, definitely there will be a replacement. And I understand um, Angela is going to be involved in finding that replacement. Also asked Angela about her assessment of her time um, coming to the role in, as, as you've just told us there, clearly a pretty tricky time for the group. And she believes that she more than fulfilled the brief and said that, uh, kind of pointing to that, saying everyone knows the story of Densu. So um, I guess that speaks for itself. And again, asked Angela about the kind of reductions in staffing and some of those clients over the last two or three years. And she said, you know, by shifting the operating model as they have, this was always going to result in some reductions across the board. Um, Banksy, as we kind of touched on there, it is interesting timing, but Tangus, as I said, and as she said, has pretty much done what she was placed into that role to do. What are your thoughts on that? Look, Callum, Angela's a phenomenal strategical talent. She's a business marketing person. I think she thinks very strategically. Uh, I think she's also a very, she has like this very analytical approach to her marketing. When she moved to Dentsu, she wasn't your typical agency person. I think she operated much more like a consultant. Uh, I think she thinks differently about the industry. She acts differently. She's much more about performance and numbers and strategy. I don't think she's for everybody. And I think that because she's seen as not playing that agency game, you know, she's very, she may be seen as being quite polarizing within um, the teams and the groups, but it's her skills which are highly valued by the business and I think are coming through. And that's the reason why Dentsu's promoted her because she's someone who's really rooted in the understanding of the business, how to read those numbers and use those numbers. And Dentsu's pretty much said, look, this is someone we should be using to drive this approach in an audience that matters. I think it's easier for Dentsu to move her to an area where she can drive change globally. And I think, look, that 
Callum, that might piss people off, might piss off the locals here in Australia because Australia really is not the central to its operations and that's another thing that kind of rubs people up the wrong way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would argue that um, Australia is a very important market for Dentsu to continue to do well, and that's why they have quite heavily invested in getting things back on track. But I do agree with you there, Banksy, that Angela's is seen as being very operationally focused rather than maybe directly client-focused like some other CEOs in this market. Um, it will be interesting to see if that operational focus does linger or if the culture will kind of kick on to be more product uh, people and client focused. Um, by the sounds of it, Angela is being taken across to the UK because Dentsu do really understand and appreciate the job that she does. And there is that specific job, as you mentioned there. Um, Angela mentioned that the UK is on a very similar journey and there's a sort there's sort of an opportunity to double down on some of the work that they're doing. Um, and also also on that, Cal, I think it's interesting to not focus essentially on us Australia as a country losing great talent, but also the the actual talent crisis overseas and how we're looking at those really big markets out there coming to Australia to find talent here. And that says a lot about their industries over there where they haven't got that talent coming through and they're coming to us. So that's a really good positive thing to say about the Australian industry right now. The, the next part is they actually now start to grow with the foundations that Tangus has built. Um, and, and, you know, this will also very much be, I guess, defined by who they bring into that role. Um, it's always fun thinking about who, which names might fit where. Any thoughts on your mind there, Banksy? Look, I think Kirsty Model is somebody who would easily fit in that role. I think she's a real agency person and she'd be a really good choice. But I think if you're looking for somebody with a similar mindset to Angela's in Australia, I guess someone like John Wilde, who's the CMO at Pet Circle, he's a top business marketer. But I guess what could Dentsu offer him? when he's already building a brand there on the inside. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, the, the obvious there, there are obvious choices there with the two uh, group CEOs um, as uh, maybe seamlessly fitting in there. I do feel like they're both kind of still enjoying their, their current roles. I do understand that Dentsu are looking for a Kara-specific CEO at the moment. With Sue, in the meantime, having been juggling that Dentsu media CEO role with the Kara-specific role. But, um, you know, I think most are potentially thinking they might actually bring someone in from overseas within the network, um, as Dentsu do like to move things around in that front, or maybe another established um, individual from within our current industry. Angela has potentially pushed for Dentsu to be a little bit more reserved over these last two and a half years, and some have suggested that now for the group to grow, um, they might need someone a, a little bit more connected to the industry. Um, you know, you mentioned there, Banksy. Um, I mean, I think the term you used was um, polarizing, but, you know, someone who is really advertising focused. Now they've done the tricky bit in restructuring and set it up for success. Now they need to bring in someone with big credentials to actually grow the business and get that success. As right now, we haven't seen all too much evidence of that. Uh, this will also obviously include bringing in uh, a sort of a whale of a client of sorts, most likely on that media side, in order to really drive business. Um, you know, full disclosure, we have no clue at this point who it's going to be, but um, some names that have been thrown out that could be interesting would be something like Anathea Rise at UM, 
maybe even Mark Jarrett or staying within the PhD network, um, their APAC CEO, James Hawkins. All interesting choices, and I'm sure there are many more. Up next, SBS launches World Watch. Umbrella's Automotive Marketing Summit is back to reunite the automotive marketing industry. Returning on September 21 at Sofitel Melbourne, the one-day summit will tackle the biggest marketing challenges and showcase the best case studies in the automotive industry. With early bird tickets released, now is the time to secure your spot. Book now and save $100. Head to mumbrella.com.au forward slash automotive. On Monday, SBS launched its new multilingual news channel, World Watch, which you can find on your TVs at Channel 35. To speak about the channel's inception and the work the public broadcaster did for English Second Language Australians during the election, we spoke to SBS's Mandy Wicks and David Hua. Uh, SBS News and Current Affairs Director Mandy Wicks and David Hua, Director of SBS Radio, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to be here. So we're recording this on Monday, the 23rd of May, and today you've just launched uh, World Watch, a new TV channel on Channel 35. I think, um, Mandy, if you want to just, I guess, start us off and tell us a little bit about the new channel and what the thinking and purpose behind of it was. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we are very excited today because it's not every day you launch a new free-to-wear channel, so SBS's sixth channel. Uh, what we've done is we've taken all the news bulletins that we bring in from around the world in languages other than English, and we've put them all onto one platform plus some additional languages. Uh, so it becomes a one-stop shop, if you like, for more than 35 languages Um news bulletins uh, in the one place, um, and it's SBS World Watch. And the reason we've done that, it's an extension, I guess, of SBS's commitment to multilingual and multicultural communities. Um, for years, we have been bringing these, some of these services in, um, and they've been peppered across the, the schedule uh, and across various channels. And in this way, we can really shine a light on what we do best, and that is we do content in languages, multiple languages, and this is the international perspective. Um, and so much of what we then produce is about Australian news and current affairs. So is this sort of, uh, I mean, how much of it is an expansion on your existing services and how much of it is more just kind of making it more accessible? So there are a number of new languages like Malayalam and Gujarati and as a schedule it will continue to evolve. Um, so there are other languages that will come. So we will build the number of languages but it also means that we've been able to increase the um, commitment, I guess, to the languages that we had. So on some of the other networks, we might have only had one or two bulletins a week in a particular language, whereas on World Watch, we could strip the entire week um, or five bulletins, for example, like something like Maltese. So we've able to sort of accelerate our commitment in terms of these news bulletins um, for our communities and audiences. And obviously, we are uh, a, d a day, well, the first day after the uh, weekend's election. Um, David, I know over the course of the federal election, SBS um, got access to some of the other networks, well, all of the other networks' um, debates, I believe. Um, was that a sort of introductory offering? And a, a, how, how does that sort of serve as a good springboard to now launch this new channel? 
Well, we're very grateful for the partnerships that we had with the other networks in terms of access to the debates. And what we were able to do was to make the um, debate much more accessible for our audiences. We had um, interpreters in Mandarin, Arabic, Cantonese and Vietnamese live translating what was being said by the um, by the two candidates and by um, the uh, moderator as well. Um, that was distributed on SBS On Demand as well as on social media and it really helped the community to be able to understand what the policies were, a bit more about the personalities involved and to um, help form a um, well-informed electorate and that's certainly to the benefit of the whole of the community. In terms of how it relates to World Watch, it's an uh, extension like SBS World Watches of our multilingual um, audience offering. World Watch has got those 35 languages and um, SBS Radio and SBS Audio and Language Content offers content in over 60 languages on top of that. Um, well, as uh, uh, in 60 languages as well, and um, that's the content that we make. So World Watch um, takes in content from around the world and shares it with Australian audiences. What we do in SBS Radio is certainly produce content um, in language for audiences here with that Australian perspective as well. And um, Mandy, how, how are you looking to sort of advertise this to the audience that I guess is that target audience? Because, you know, we're discussing it here, but I guess the crossover between Mumbrella Cast listeners and World Watch listeners, I, I'm not sure what that exactly is like, but I guess how are people going to stumble across uh, Channel 35? Well, I think um, I think there'd probably be a number of your listeners who probably do speak languages other than English. There's, you know, five million people in Australia who speak a language other than English at home, and we know that, you know, many of them, forty percent of them, like to consume um, media in language. So they may consume in English, but they absolutely like to consume in language. So you probably do have listeners who would be the audience as well. <laughs> And certainly language learners. So, you know, French, so. for example, that's a very popular bulletin that comes in and we know language learners love it. Um, but in terms of migrating audiences across to this new channel, um, you're right, there's been a lot of focus go into trying to reach those communities to um, be able to explain to them that they need to move to a new channel, hopefully same time or a new time and um, to be able to find that channel as well. So we've been doing a lot of communications through the 60-plus language service that David oversees, um, and those journalists have been really working hard to communicate the message. In addition, we've been doing videos in languages other than English, FAQs. We've upweighted our audience relations team, um, and we have had calls coming in today with people who are saying, oh, can't find my bulletin and us being able to assist them. So that's been great. Um, but it is, we launched essentially the, the Barker Reel. So we got the channel up and running a couple of weeks ago with Barker Reel um, rotating purely for the purposes of trying to increase awareness that there is a new channel, there is a change, and to try to encourage audiences to find, if they can, Channel 35 on their televisions and then be ready for today's launch. 
And David, how would you say that, I, I guess, World Watch is, I mean, it, it, it certainly appeal, appears as though it is a sort of typically SBS service. How do you think it sort of encapsulates that SBS purpose of sorts? Well, SBS is a world of difference, and this World Watch has always provided audiences with that window to different perspectives and um, different stories from around the world. And that's what makes us distinctive. Um, being able to um, watch and consume in a language that is um, much more familiar to Australians of um, who speak a language other than English really helps to build that sense of, of place and really helps to um, connect and uh, have a sense of belonging certainly to the language but certainly to Australia and SBS helping to facilitate um, that consumption and that those stories being um, available certainly puts um, us in in very high regard and that's the the feedback that we get from our audiences as well if we couple that with the um, bespoke content that we produce ourselves through um, uh, radio and through our digital platforms where we've got um, news information, stories, community activities and the like on the ground right around Australia, then that really um, then builds an experience for audiences that um, makes them feel extremely comfortable in Australia and builds that social cohesion, which is fundamentally um, SBS's remit. And just finally, um, in terms of actual scheduling, you will be producing a few um, in-house productions in different languages as well. If you want to just um, tell us a bit about that, Mandy. We are very excited that we have been working very hard in the background in the last few months to start up two new television news services, SBS News in Arabic and SBS News in Mandarin. So we've built the teams from scratch, um, created all the workflows, and these teams have been building up their output uh, to the full half an hour, ready for a free-to-air launch uh, on SBS World Watch. So these two bulletins will be prime time, so Arabic at 8 o'clock Monday to Friday um, and then Mandarin at 8.30 each night. And actually, in addition, we are taking the best of the content we make uh, in terms of current affairs. It's also being subtitled. Um, and we've been doing this for a while in Arabic and Mandarin, and that will also be played out on this channel. So Insight, Dateline, Living Black, uh, The Point, etc. cetera. Um, so, yeah, it's very, it's very exciting to have our own content, and this content is very much focused on Australian news, some international news, but Australian news, as David said, it's really about getting people to understand the community in which they live um, and to feel part of that community and increase that sense of belonging. Brilliant. And, and have there been um, hires off the back of those teams being created? Yes, we we literally spun these teams up from nothing uh, and kicked it off at the towards the end of last year with recruitment uh, and have put together a really small uh, but solid team for Arabic and Mandarin. Um, and these teams very much collaborate with our broader Mandarin and Arabic uh, language services. So from an audience perspective, you know, it's one SBS um, and we look for those m distinctive and original stories that we can then amplify across all platforms. Brilliant. Well, uh, Mandy and David, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Callum. 
And that's it for another week on the Mumbrella Cast. Please make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and check out our website at mumbrella.com.au for more content and updates. Banksy, thank you. Thank you. That was awesome. And thanks to Kalila. Thank you. And thanks, Dee, Mandy, and David for joining us as well. See you next week. <laughs>